Good morning, everyone. We're going to read this beautiful passage from Philippians, starting at chapter 4, verse 1 through to verse 13. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with you, dear, and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Thanks, Robin. Good morning. Uh, My name's Ian. And those, maybe some people don't know me, I'll just, a bit of background. I worked for many years as a uh, research scientist with CSIRO before I retired about 10 years ago now. And then I decided I should expand my Bible knowledge a bit, so I studied for a Master of Divinity degree, actually here at the Bible College. And I finished that a couple of years ago. And since then, I've helped out a bit by preaching a few times, so Carl can have a break from time to time. Um, So this one is the fifth and the last in a series of sermons Carl's asked me to preach on Paul's letter to the Philippians. It's been a great experience for me, taking the time to look closely at this letter. The love and concern Paul shows for the Philippian church and the confidence he has in them to hold fast to the gospel. It's been good to look at the situation Paul and his readers were in and to reflect how it relates to us today. In 1965, Donald Horne published a book about Australia called The Lucky Country. At the time, he intended the name ironically, but it has been adopted as a positive slant. And in many ways, it's still true. As a country, Australia is wealthy and secure far from the conflicts that trouble many parts of the world. We sometimes face natural disasters, which can have tragic consequences in loss of life and property. But in comparison with many parts of the world, we're well-placed to deal with such events. A novel by author John Marsden, Tomorrow When the War Began, 
actually the first in a series, looked at what might happen if our security and safety were taken away. It's a story that in the main takes place after Australia has been invaded and conquered by an unnamed foreign power. The teenage heroine, Ellie Linton, was away camping when the invasion happened, and she and her friends have to deal with the reality of having everything they had, their homes, their land, their possessions, being taken from them. Used to living in peace and security, they suddenly find themselves effectively living on their own in a war zone. They have to decide whether to fight or to accept their conquered status. Paul's letter to the Philippians was written to a church living in a war zone as far as their faith was concerned. By accepting Christ as their Lord, they'd lost the security of their community and its religions, and they were in danger of persecution, of losing status and property, perhaps even of death. Like Ellie and her friends, they had to make a decision. Would they remain faithful to the gospel that Paul had taught them, or perhaps turn back to the culture that they'd come from? Well, in our church today, we're not in the same sort of danger as Ellie or the Philippians, but we have some things in common. We're out of step with many in our community, seen by some as foolish and by some as a threat. Some see going to church as just a sort of hobby. We can't take for granted things that previous generations accepted without question. Respect for the church, knowledge of our beliefs, a church with a reputation for honesty and integrity. Like Ellie and the Philippians, we are in a war zone, but our war is spiritual. Today we're going to be looking at Philippians 4 and also looking back over what we've learned from Philippians so far and seeing what Paul concludes. How do we live in a time of spiritual warfare? Now, before I go on, there is something I want to say. Paul writes about living with joy and adversity and not being anxious about anything. These words could be hard to hear for some people. I know a few years ago when I was suffering depression, the idea of living with joy seemed totally unrealistic. I could hardly remember what it was like to feel happy. If this is your situation, please bear with me. Paul's words have a message for all of us. Let's start by looking again at some background about Philippi. Here's a map of the region. Philippi was a city in Macedonia, modern-day Greece. It was a Roman colony where the worship of Caesar as Lord and Saviour was the norm. Paul visited Philippi on one of his missionary journeys. He founded the church there, but was later imprisoned and forced to leave. You can read the story in Acts 16. Despite his rather negative experience, this letter makes it clear that Paul has warm feelings towards the church at Philippi. As he writes his letter, he is again in prison, probably in Rome, and he knows that the Philippians too could be in danger of persecution for their faith. So in chapter 1 of Philippians, Paul reminded them to look at things the right way up, not seeing his imprisonment and their persecution as threats, but as opportunities to spread the gospel, including to his jailers, the Praetorian Guard. He called the Philippians to unity as a response to these threats. He ended the chapter with, It has been granted to you to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had. Then in chapter 2, he expanded on this theme of unity, calling them to have the same mind, 
the same love, the same spirit. He called on them to build their unity through humility, considering each other more important than themselves. He gave a supreme example in Jesus, who was equal to God, but freely chose humiliation and death for the sake of his followers. He told them they should have the same mind that was in Jesus Christ, the mindset of humility, seeking the good of others rather than themselves. He continued, reminding them of how this should work out. Rather than grumbling or complaining, they should shine like stars in a crooked generation. They should be rejoicing with him, despite his imprisonment and their persecution. Although they're in a war zone, they should rejoice. We'll be coming back to this apparently upside-down command again in a moment. First Paul's next chapter, chapter 3, looked at another aspect of living in a war zone. It contained warnings about being led astray from the gospel, giving in to those opposed to the gospel either to Jewish legalism or to conformity with the corrupt society around them. Paul is vehement in his denunciation of those who would lead them astray. The chapter ends, though, on a milder note, with Paul assuring the Philippians of their salvation and their citizenship in heaven. So let's now turn to today's passage, which picks up on some of these themes. Would you please open your Bibles to chapter, Philippians chapter 4 and verse 1? Chapter 4 begins with a mild reproach to two of the women in the Philippians congregation. We don't know what Euodia and Syntyche have been quarreling about, but Paul wants them to make up, so I guess it wasn't anything too fundamental, and he's calling them to reach a compromise with the help of the Christian community. Here we have a specific example of what Paul has been writing about. Be of one mind. Be united so they can stand against the persecution that they follow. Then, coming on to verse 4, once again we see Paul calling the Philippians to turn the world on its head. He said, don't worry about trivia, don't quarrel about trivia, don't worry about persecution, temptation, or imprisonment. Instead, verse 4, rejoice. And Paul makes the point emphatically. Rejoice in the Lord always, again I say rejoice. Do you remember that song we used to sing in Sunday school? He and the Philippians are suffering persecution, imprisonment. They're subject to temptations. They're quarreling amongst themselves. How can he call them to rejoice? And it isn't an afterthought or a casual aside. Paul has written this before. Indeed, it's been a recurring theme throughout the letter. Look at these verses. Verse 1, chapter 4, sorry, chapter 1, verse 4. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Christ is preached. Because of this, I rejoice. Yes, I will continue to rejoice. Chapter 2, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Again, chapter 2, even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. You too should be glad and rejoice with me. Chapter 3, further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard to you. Seems though Paul is aware that he's repeating himself, but then he does it joyfully. And now, chapter 4, verse 4. 
Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. So what is Paul saying? He's telling them and us, don't be distracted by your situation or the troubles of the world. Rejoice in the Lord because all he has done for us. So Paul is calling us to joy. But what does this joy look like? Any Collingwood supporters here? (laughs) Oh, yes, there's a few. (laughs) What does this joy look like? Well, in the next verse, verse 5, Paul says in the NIV, let your gentleness be evident to all. That word gentleness is translated differently in other versions of the Bible. The ESV uses reasonableness, while the King James Version has moderation. Let your moderation be evident to all. The Greek word has the implications of equitable, being fair and restrained in your desires and judgments. So being joyful doesn't always involve shouting and screaming and waving our arms around. Collingwood, you're welcome to do it. So that's um, perhaps comforting for those introverts among us who aren't that comfortable with all of that. It can appear in a life of quiet confidence. Confidence because, as Paul writes at the end of verse 4, the Lord is near. Quiet confidence because the Lord is near. At first sight, this seems a bit different to my suggestion earlier that we and the Philippians are living in a war zone. Now I'm saying rejoice because the Lord is near. But it's not really a contradiction. Recall Paul's words in chapter 1 I quoted. It has been granted to you to suffer. And in chapter 2, shine like stars in a warped and crooked generation. This is the same message. We are in a war zone that, unlike Ellie Linton, our battle is not to defeat the enemy. No, we are called to love our enemy. To show them that we have something that they need. Something that will call them to join us in following Jesus. We are to shine like stars in a warped and crooked generation. Paul continues his description of this joyful life in the next two verses, six and seven. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Because we have this joy, this confidence in God's nearness, this confidence in our fellowship, We have no need of anxiety. What do the Philippians have to feel anxious about? Well, quite a bit. We've read they could well be facing persecution for their faith. We've seen they were being tempted to stray from the gospel to Jewish ritual or conformity with a heathen culture around them. We've seen that quarrels are threatening to divide them. And Paul tells them, don't be anxious about anything. Remember in chapter 1, he spoke of his own persecution and imprisonment and concluded, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. He remained confident, confident that the Philippians would stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. And Paul tells them how to live in anxious situations. In every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, 
present your requests to God. In every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. This is one of those verses we can quickly pass over without really thinking about how amazing it is. The holy God, creator and sustainer of the universe, vast and complex, far beyond our imagining, wants to listen to our little requests. In every situation, we're told to turn to him in confidence. Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, verse 7, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. This incredible God cares for you and for me. The Lord is near. As we read in Philippians 2, God is working in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So Paul reminds us to be joyful. And as part of that joyfulness, notice the word in the middle of verse 6, with thanksgiving. Remember when we see God at work, or even when we don't see his activity yet, to give thanks for his amazing love for us and the caring that listens to our concerns. And then we have the promise of verse 7. The peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ. Paul says that when we take our cares to God, when we present our requests to him through prayer and petition, when we give him the thanks due to his love and care for us, his peace will guard our hearts and minds. Despite all the things we could be anxious about, this peace, beyond all our understanding, will guard our hearts and minds. I think verse 8 will be familiar to many of us. It has a positive ring. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Now, what is Paul saying here? Think happy thoughts and you won't have to worry? That actually doesn't seem to fit his message of reliance on God in the midst of suffering. Those of you in my age group, I think there's a few of us left, may recall a motivational writer by the name of Norman Vincent Peale. His book, The Power of Positive Thinking, was a bestseller in the 1950s. It contained maxims such as, think of positive thoughts to drown out a negative thought, or minimize obstacles. So is this what Paul's telling us here? Think positive thoughts, think about things that are true, noble, right, and so on, and everything will be okay? Well, that sounds like Norman Vincent Peale, but it doesn't sound much like Paul, who's been telling us to rejoice in the presence of difficulties, not because they've gone away. And in fact, it isn't what Paul is saying. He's giving us a different message. Trouble is, those words think about, they're a bit ambiguous. They could have the Norman Vincent Peale meaning, think about good things so you feel good, but in fact, the words think about have a different meaning. Suppose you had this conversation with a friend. He comes up to you and says, could you look after my big hairy dog for a while while I go away on a three-week Mediterranean cruise? You might respond, oh, I'll have to think about that. Think about it. You'd have to weigh the advantages of helping your friend and enjoying the company of the dog with the disadvantages of having to care for the dog's needs and live with all the hairs everywhere. So thinking about something can mean considering the pros and cons and evaluating the options. And that's the meaning the Greek word has here. In other places, it's translated as consider or evaluate. So in 4.8, 
Paul is saying, consider the good things of this world, the things regarded by the culture as true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, or praiseworthy. Evaluate them. These words, by the way, are those that would appear in a Greek philosopher's list of virtues. Paul is not saying they're wrong, but he is saying that the Philippians should look at the things that the culture considers good and evaluate them by the standards of the gospel. That's what he goes on to explain in verse 9. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Rejoice. Don't worry. Live by the gospel, not the values of the culture. Live by humility, mutual respect, selflessness. Don't live by, it's all about me. Now, as I said at the beginning, I'm aware that for some of us, Paul's words in this passage seem hard. For those with difficult situations in the family at work, for those afflicted with clinical depression or anxiety, the idea of always being filled with joy may seem far away. Real joy may only be a distant memory. How can we rejoice in the Lord always? Now look back again to verse 5. Let your gentleness, your reasonableness be evident to all. This is the joy that Paul is talking about, the joy that the Lord is near. Joy in our fellowship with one another. We don't always have to be bubbling with happiness, though we should when it's appropriate. And we certainly don't have to put on a show wearing a happy mask when our hearts are breaking. But it does mean that in our hardest times we can hold on to hope. Paul tells us not to worry about anything. Do we have things to feel anxious about? I'm sure each of us has individual worries about health or work or families. I'm sure we can all feel anxious at times about the situation of the world, the indifference of our culture to the call of Jesus, temptations to greed, selfishness and lust that surround us every day, wars and natural disasters around the world, saber-rattling by world powers. For some of us, this anxiety can be overwhelming. It can be hard to grasp what Paul means by don't worry about anything. But he tells us in verse 6 how that works. In every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Take your anxieties, your fears, your temptations, and present them in prayer and petition to God. Paul doesn't say it will solve all our problems. He doesn't say it will instantly cure us of anxiety or fear. And that certainly wasn't my experience. But in the midst of all our turmoil, we can be confident in one thing. God's peace will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ. Not what we think about, it's what we put into practice. Paul is telling the Philippians that they must look to the gospel that he has preached or written to them and to his own actions. These are the standards they must live by, including the prayer and petition with thanksgiving he's just mentioned, not the standards of the surrounding culture. Don't look to Norman Vincent Peale or the Greek philosophers. Practice the things Paul has taught and demonstrated not being conformed to or distracted by the good things of this world. Paul concludes his letter by thanking the Philippians for their support. He's pleased more for their sake than his, as he says in verse 17. Indeed, he says in verses 12 and 13, he can be content in any situation because Christ gives him strength. Paul is again showing the Philippians a worked example of his teaching. Rejoice in the Lord always. He's learnt the secret, he says, of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, 
whether in plenty or in want. Rejoice in Christ who gives us strength. So what can we learn from this letter written nearly 2,000 years ago? Technology may have changed, science may have given us a grander and more detailed knowledge of the universe, but human nature is still the same, fallen and in need of redemption and salvation. The problems that Christians faced in the culture of first century Greece are not so different to those we face today. The challenges that they face and that we face boil down to this one. How can we live in a fallen world? How can we live in a spiritual war zone? Paul's answer in this letter has come in three parts. Rejoice, be united, follow the gospel. Let me take those in reverse order. We're to follow the gospel. We are to be lights in this fallen, darkened world. The main thing about a light is that it's visible. By our reasonableness, our gentleness, our care for others, we are to stand out in a world captured by faction and self-centeredness. We can look back to Isaiah in the Old Testament. Seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. From its earliest days, the church was known as a place of sanctuary for the poor and the oppressed. Slaves and even women were welcomed, included and honoured. Then also we are to be united. We are to be on our guard against the divisions that marred the witness of the church so often. We often say together the Apostles' Creed, the ancient statement of faith. Remember the words of that creed. I believe in the communion of saints. We are one church with one head, a community crossing barriers of time and space. We're always seeking to build each other up, learning from each other and honoring one another. And together, we are to rejoice. Rejoice that we can be seen as different in our society, not because of our strange beliefs, but because we stand out in showing love for one another, in serving one another, with our reasonableness evident to all. We're not to ignore problems, but we rejoice in the midst of them. It has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Rejoice because we've received salvation as the gift of a loving God. To rejoice in the the Lord always, again I say rejoice. And we can rejoice because it is not in our strength that we do these things. It is God who works in us to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you rejoicing. We thank you for this letter written by Paul so long ago that serves to unite us with a church throughout time and space. May its message live in our hearts so we can follow your gospel, united as we seek to build each other up and rejoicing that you loved us enough to die for us. May we be lights in a fallen world. May we be a community that draws others to join with us in rejoicing and finding salvation through your power and your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.